caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast at 3CR. You're here with Grace and Rob. Hi Grace, how are you? I'm good. Morning Rob, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's um, just for all of our listeners out there, it's my first time behind the panel, so uh, hopefully things go smoothly today. I think we do well, no worries. Yeah, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. Yes. How was your weekend, Grace? Well, it was quite eventful. (laughs) I I went to the Palestine rally just yesterday. It was very, very hot. Yes. And Rob, you were there as well. Yes. We could agree. That was, I think it was the hottest day in Melbourne in like history or something. I I saw, I think I saw on the news, it was like the first official hottest day of Melbourne ever. So it's crazy. It was 37 degrees, the highest I saw. Wow. And we, I could literally feel the hot wind. Like literally, yeah. it's so bad. I, Absolutely hate when the wind gets really warm. It mm. feels like you're in a microwave. Mm. So it was so bad. But yeah, that was my Sunday. I can't remember what I was doing on Saturday. <laughs> I think I was just working or something. Yeah, that's all I can think yeah. of. So yeah. But how was yours, Rob? Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, just finishing off some moving stuff between the houses. Um, well, like the old place and the new place, I should say. Not mm-hmm. that I own a second house or anything. That would be weird. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, with the heat, it was kind of weird because I didn't really feel it when we were at the rally and then I got home and it, it sort of just hit me, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, especially like towards the evening, like it just, it was really quite annoying how it just wouldn't, like it wouldn't cool down until very late in the evening, you know? Mm, I get it. Yeah. yeah. And... It's just, it's just, it just sucks that like you can't do anything but the heat. And mm. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I love summer, but I mm. just sometimes it's just too much for me. Yeah, and I get migraines when that happens, so I'm just a bit like, eh. yeah, yeah. I read somewhere recently that uh, I, I guess uh, escaping the effects of climate change is. Um, an issue of poverty, you know, like, oh, and yeah. socio socioeconomic status more, I guess. So, you know, like, if it's a hot day, being able to go home and put on the air, con- air conditioning is a real privilege, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that's, that is true. I always, I always tell myself, like, I'm complaining about so many things in my, for, like, that's mm. happening to me, but then I always, but then I have to remember I'm so much more privileged than a lot of people out there. And I have, I have the opportunity to, to do things that might seem simple and very like oh that's the basic bare minimum we all should be having but you know some people Mm. don't even have that minimum standards of living and that's just really sad but at the same time yeah just always have to remember to be grateful and Mm. don't take things for granted yeah i reckon yeah so that's why so we've got a pretty big show yes today uh i'm gonna be 
replaying one of my segments from last week talk about pill mm. testing. Mm. So, yep, that was when I was speaking to Dr. Adrian Farija, whether pill testing is the answer to hopefully reducing harm of drug use and mm. gaining more impor- uh, gaining more insights for Australian youth drug education. No, yeah, awesome, yep. awesome. That'd be really good to re- to hear that one again. Um, and at seven fifteen, uh, I'm doing an interview with Liz from Renegade Activists, um, and we're just going to be talking about how um, a Melbourne company has been found to be linked to what's happening in Palestine, specifically. Mm. Um, yeah, I won't say too much about it now, and we'll just go into it then. But um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting. It's going to be a very interesting conversation to find out how just a, a parts company is linked to Israel's genocidal war on Palestine. Sweet. Mm. Anyway, for now, let's um, get into some headlines, shall we? Yes. I'll start off first. Mm-hmm. So just headlines for today morning on 5th of February here on Breakfast Show. The Albanese government has unveiled their long-awaited plan for fuel efficiency standards, highlighting potential petrol savings of $1,000 a year for motorists and predicting a coalition-led SCAG campaign. The proposed course of action sets to place a yearly cap on the emissions output for new cars sold in Australia to incentivize car makers to supply low and zero emission vehicles and companies who do not comply will be penalized. Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen pitched the new standards as a cost-of-living measure, considering new vehicles sold here are 40% less efficient than those sold in the EU. Car manufacturers that fail to meet the standards across the entire fleet will face financial penalty from 1st of January 2025. The proposed fine was $100 for every gram over the target. Whoa. Yeah, uh, it's quite interesting. I didn't think that, because I thought all cars, they all made the same. <laughs> I didn't know that fuel would be less efficient here than in another country. So oh. that was a new thing I learned this yesterday morning. I <laughs> so, really wonder why that is. Like what? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. It it makes a lot of sense to improve it, you know, less fuel. And also, you know, the island that we're living on is a huge, huge place, you know. So mm. less fuel for more traveling and less emissions is always mm-hmm. better. An investigation by Guardian Australia has revealed Australians experiencing homelessness are dying at an average of 30 years earlier than the general population. Analysis revealed the average life expectancy of the houseless population is 44 as housing, health and housing, health and justice systems all fail to ad- adequately care for those without a home. The Guardian looked at over 600 cases some of which went back over 10 years and found that many of the deaths were completely preventable and inextricably linked to the undersupply of housing and support services around the country. I just saw a very interesting news out there from the, AB- from the ABC. Mm. Apparently now, almonds have become the largest crop grown in the low. Lower Moray, with more than 45,000 hectares planted, but they're actually more water-intensive than other horticultural crops mm. traditionally grown in the area. Mm-hmm. And they require 12.5 million litres of water per hectare. 
So that's an insane amount of water just yep. for, for an one hectare of <laughs> almonds out there. Uh, the horticultural football of the Lower Murray has known be- for decades for its vineyards, citrus and stone fruit orchids. So a global price shift has seen a new crop dominate this landscape. And yeah, with big implications for Australia's most precious commodity, which is water. So yeah, almonds are taking a lot of our sources mm. at the moment. But yes, mm. that's basically it. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. I've, uh, I remember when I, when I first went vegan, like maybe seven years ago, I was reading about all of the different, you know, like the environmental impacts of beef compared to, mm. you know, uh, especially dairy as well compared to, you know, the, the milk alternatives. And I'm pretty sure that almond milk is the most water intensive of yeah the alternative milks i think i was and i was try, even just by like tasting it you could really tell that mm. like almond has a bit of is a bit more water intense compared to like soy milk and oat milk and everything because so mm. soy and oat rely on a lot like the density of mm. like the ingredient itself so i think i, I think it's quite obvious why mainly mm. because i think maybe almonds it's a nut doesn't really give off a certain intensity mm. Mm. to the drink, I guess. So, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we'll be back in a moment. If you're feeling the heat this summer, you're not alone. Our wildlife becomes stressed and unwell more quickly in hot weather. Please keep an eye out for native animals this summer, especially during a heat wave. If you have a backyard, balcony or courtyard, provide water and shade. Call Wildlife Victoria on 8400-7300 if you see wildlife in distress or for more information. To donate or volunteer, go to wildlifevictoria.org.au. Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. The law is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. gonna rise up to break these chains and stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne, to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. 
No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Ischia Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
get a bottle opener, honey. Tell me about your day. Put your tired old feet up. Let it all drift away. Tip your glass to mine. Let's toast this thing we do. Cause all I need is a glass of wine. A few good friends and you. All I need is a glass of wine, a few good friends, and you. That was Perfect Home by a Diana Wolf, you're listening to Monday Breakfast at 3CR with me, Rob, and Grace beside me. As Israel's genocidal conquest of Palestine continues to play out, the ways in which governments and companies all over the globe are complicit are simultaneously becoming more and more transparent. One of those companies can be found right here in so-called Melbourne. They're known as HDA Global. I'm here on the line with Liz from Renegade Activists, to talk about how they're complicit. Hi, Liz. How are you going? I'm good, Rob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Grace. How are you? We're good, thank you. So, Liz, first of all, can you just give us uh, a rundown of how exactly um, a thermal processing company is complicit in what's happening in Palestine? Yeah, sure. Well, HTA, or Heat Treatment Australia, which they have a couple of uh, places down in Campbellfield, just um, just north of Melbourne, mm. um, what their role is, it's primarily about the Joint Strike Fighter or the F-35 fighter plane. Now, this is a plane that Israel have and they've gone on the record. Their lieutenants have bragged on X, or formerly Twitter, uh, saying that they have used these fighter planes against Palestinians. And what HTA do, you mentioned is thermal processing. So they're a heat treatment company and what they do is um, they work with a lot of the parts that are produced by other Australian companies and they do high pressure testing and metallurgical heat treatment so that those parts can perform better uh, in the extreme conditions. Um, the reason why HTA are such an important, I guess, target for our social movement um, in in, uh, in respect of the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign and in respect of actually stopping weapons going from Australia to Israel to be used against Palestinians mm. is that HTA are super crucial in the role of the Joint Strike Fighter but also in the support that they give to other Australian defence manufacture companies and the mm. support that they give to Albert Systems. And we know that Albert Systems is Israel's uh, biggest arms weapons supplier. Um, and, of course, um, the UK-based Palestine Action have been doing a lot of really effective direct actions against mm. Albert Systems. Their transportation company in the UK has recently cut ties with Albert Systems because of the pressure that the group Palestine Action have been um, providing. And what we're finding is that... The, these forms of action are really effective in terms of um, 
splitting the weapons companies, exposing them, mm. and um, and basically um, trying to trying to highlight how horrendous the role of the weapons companies is in mm. in this in the uh, in the, the the horrible genocide that Israel is perpetrating. Mm. Right. How long um, has HDA been supplying parts for F-35s? Well, I don't totally know, but what... So um, HDA started in 1979 in Queensland as a small family Mm. business, but at that point they were just making lawnmower blades and other things like that. Um, They were started by the father of the current director for um, current direct one of the current directors of HGA, Karen Stanton. And um, mm. Dr. Karen Stanton, so she's very uh, instrumental in this because not only is she one of the directors of HGA, but she's also the executive director for Albert Systems Australia. Mm. And she's on a couple of really super important advisory boards to the Australian government, so right. the Centre for Defence Industry Capability, and um, and she's helped to create a whole other government office, a oh. whole other government department, um, which is the Office of Defence Industries. Um, it looks like in terms of how long HGA has been doing this, in around about 2008, they got aerospace accreditation, and then a couple of years after that, they've kind of gotten more and more accreditations to be doing this. Mm. Um, it looks like they've been working with um, with Lockheed Martin for about 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah, so there's real skin in the game. They're very dedicated to this. One of the other things that HTA does and that Dr. Karen Stanton's been really instrumental in is supporting a lot of other Australian defence companies who are involved with the Joint Strike Fighter. So their role is really, um, as well as doing the heat treatment and being real kind of um, industry leaders and experts in the best kind of heat treatment, um, they also... Um, they they perform a facilitation role and the research and development that they've done means that the 70 other Australian companies who are involved with providing parts for the Joint Strike Fighter, that HGA really support those companies. So they've been um, in um, defence journals and things online and even on Australian government websites. You can see uh, HGA and Dr Karen Stanton really kind of elevated for the positive role uh, played in supporting these other companies uh, with relation to the Joint Strike Fighter. Wow. That... um that's really horrifying that it's really all inextricably linked with the government for so long. Yep, absolutely. So that, that uh, leads really well into my next question is, um, which if they're kind of linked with the government for some time, I guess that means that our tax dollars would be used to be funding these, the creation of these parts, right? Yes. Um, in relation to exactly how much money HTA has received from the federal government, I haven't been able to figure that out yet, but mm. there is a team of researchers on this now, and I think some of this information will just get more and more exposed as the days and weeks go on. Mm. Um, but it looks like um, the 70 companies, 70 Australian companies who've been involved with producing parts of the Joint Strike Fighter, it's about $4.1 billion Australian dollars, and that's uh, from the Australian Department of Defence website. Whoa, that's that's a huge amount of money. 
it's a huge amount of money. You think about how many schools you can build for that, how many hospitals you yeah. can build for that. Yeah. Mm. How much aid you could send to Palestinians for that. Mm. How many mm. lives you could save. Exactly. How many lives you could save. How many lives you could prevent from ending. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's worth also pointing out that um, the Joint Strike Fighter, they're, with these 70 companies, a lot of them are in accessible places around Melbourne as well. So mm. there's a lot of um, there's a lot of small groups now who are starting up who are wanting to be taking action against these companies. Mm. There's um, so Rosebank Engineering in Bayswater, they make the bomb bay and the landing gear for the Joint Strike Fighters. So wow. when you when you see uh, a joint strap fighter from Israel and the, the door opens to drop the bomb, that's Rosebank Engineering in Bayswater. Uh, but there's also um, weapons adapters that are made by Ferra in Queensland, the keels that are made by Lovett in Greensboro, just up the road from 3CR, mm. um, airframe components and racks that are made by Levitt in Elizabeth, South Australia, engine parts for Pratt & Whitney, made by TAE in Ipswich. Mm. Airframe components made by BAE Systems. So, you know, I could go on, but yeah. um, there's a lot of information. And I think so. people wanted more info. There's some really good briefing documents on the Renegade Activist website, which mm-hmm. is just, you can just do a very simple web search for yep. Renegade Activists, click on the website, and then under resources, there are those briefing documents there. Mm. But um, there's going to be another action, as listeners might know, there were two very effective actions at yep. HTA last week that yep. resulted in the Campbellfield um, place shutting down for two days. Yep. Uh, and then this coming Friday, there's another protest. All are welcome. Um and this will be on Friday, the 9th of February from 11am, and that's at 43B Lara Way, Campbellfield. Yeah, right. We'll uh, definitely include all the information about that and the links to more information in the show notes. Um, I wanted to um, really talk about it's. It's been quite interesting to see how this information has been coming out. Do you know exactly sort of how it's... Yeah, well, as I said before, how it's come about. Well, a lot of the information is just on the internet and it's just there for people to do their own basic web searches. Hmm. Um, although I believe that HDA have now taken a little bit of info down from their website, but when I was hmm. looking late last night, there's still quite a bit there. Um, it's It's so... I would like to think that... It's been uh, partly or largely because of the research that our group and particularly Jacob Gregg from Renegade Activists mm. has been doing. And, of course, Jacob's got a show on 3CR, the Friday mm. rave uh, on a Friday afternoon. Um, over the Christmas period, he sat down and basically tried to dig up as much dirt as he could um, and, and put all this information together, again, just with simple web searches. And it's mm. all there on the Australian government website. Wow on the websites of these companies in um, defence journals that are largely not even locked down, like you largely don't even need a university student password to get into these things. Um, So, you know, if people wanted to add to that research, you absolutely could do that. Wow. It's pretty scary that they're just so open about 
what their parts do and, the, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the reasons for this is because of the decline in Australia's manufacturing, which, of course, we should be tracing back to the free trade agreements that mm. happened in the early 2000s, um, those free trade agreements basically make it extremely difficult for Australia to be manufacturing very much at all. Mm. But defence is one of the areas where Australia can be doing manufacturing. And it's worth noting as well that at the moment, the Australian government is around about top 15 globally for weapons manufacturing. Mm. They aim to be within the top 10. So this is an area where the Australian mm. government has very openly and very publicly said we want to support this manufacturing sector right. um, and um, and instead of manufacturing things that we need in this country, uh, defence is defence manufacturing is the thing that they've uh, gone for. Wow. An odd choice? Mm, indeed. Mm. Yeah, so Liz, just finally, um, can you just tell us more about um, the the campaign ahead for renegade activists and um, I guess a little bit more about the rally happening on Friday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we really need to acknowledge the awesome role of a group called Hume for Palestine. Mm. Uh, that's a local group in the Hume municipality. Um, they had a great protest on the 18th of December outside the council building when they put a motion to count for a ceasefire that council then had to endorse because there ended up being a good couple of thousand people at that rally. Wow. So massive props to the Hume for Palestine group who've been really mm. instrumental in mobilising local community. Um, local community, of course, are outraged about this because mm. um, there's a lot of people from the Middle East uh, living in the Hume area, um, so um, it's close to people's heart. Um, but the campaign ahead, so there's quite a few groups who are involved now and we get kind of more endorsements coming on by the day. Um, so as well as Hume for Palestine, um, mm. it's big priority for um, for for free Palestine Melbourne and also for the Victorian socialists. Um, but there's there's also lots of different direct action groups who are um, doing things autonomously, and that's mm. all adding uh, huge strength um, to the to the overall campaign. Um, the idea is to try to shut these companies down and basically make it unviable for them to be um, manufacturing weapons parts for the Joint Strike Fighter. Yeah. But I think that the campaign needs to also be strongly orienting towards Albert Systems with everything that it does yeah. because, of course, Albert Systems is um, is Israel's biggest weapons provider. Mm. Um, so that's what makes HTA such a great target because Dr Karen Stanton is the executive chair of Albert Systems so mm. I see the campaign being um, um, diversifying to other areas. So there are um, other priority um, factories that are um, uh, need to be targeted. Um, but this, uh, I, I, I foresee this happening in a bit more of a coordinated way. Mm. So um, I think we're going to be seeing lots of activity in this space and... Um, 
certainly if listeners do see promoted an action in their local area against their local weapons manufacturer, then um, I would um, urge you to rock up and be part of it. Uh, mm. Because I think the thing is, is that the local communities, people are not tolerating that these weapons manufacturers are in their neighbourhoods right yeah. there. You know, this is our turf, this is our communities that mm. we're talking about. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Liz. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Grace. Thank Keep you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. That was Liz from Renegade Activists. Uh, we were talking about uh, a company called HDA, HDA Global and they work they do to provide parts for F-35 jets. I think you could call them, uh, which are currently being used to bomb people in Palestine. We'll be back in a second. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. FreeCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. FreeCR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at FreeCR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job, or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast at 3CR. You're, I'm Rob and I'm also here with, with Grace. Um, before those ads, we heard my interview with Liz 
from renegade activists, and we were, uh, it was a very important issue talking about HDA Global's um, link to the genocide happening right now in Palestine. Um, be sure to check out their socials and get involved in the campaign for for Palestine at large. And uh, as Liz pretty scarily said, get involved with your get involved to help stop your local weapons manufacturer. Um, as as they said on the line, um, they're having a rally at HDA in uh, in Melbourne this Friday. Um, you can check out the details in our show notes and on their social media. Um, now we are going to move to Grace's interview from last week. Um, she spoke with Dr. A- Adrian Farouja who is a senior research fellow in the Drugs, Gender and Sexuality Program at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. Um, They're talking about whether pill testing is the answer for reducing harm of drug use and Australian youth drug education. Let's listen. Now, recently, Victoria has seen a surge in overdosing at music festivals on back-to-back weekends in Melbourne. So this has actually sparked a debate on acquiring pill testing in Victoria, which in short is a harm reduction strategy that allows a person who is already in a possession of a drug to test out what is already in it. Currently, trials of pill testing are already underway in ACT and Queensland. However, however, the Victorian government has no plans in introducing such practice at the moment. Joining me this morning is Dr. Adrian Farouja, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the Drugs, Gender and Sexuality Program at the Australian Research Centre in Insects, Health and Society at La Trobe University. We discuss whether is pill testing the answer to reducing harm of drug use. Good morning, Adrian. Morning, thanks for having me on. Lovely to have you. Now, Adrian, can we first, before we dive into whether pill testing is the answer, can you tell us what are party drugs, which a lot of people have been using in music festivals and what do they include? Yeah, yeah important question. Um, I mean, party drugs used to kind of be referred to the, by using the term club drugs. So it's the kind of uh, drugs that people associate with, like, dance festivals and partying in clubs and that kind of thing. And most generally, they're, well, historically, they've been amphetamine-type stimulants. So the classic one would be, like, ecstasy or MDMA, as well as things like speed and cocaine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as with these sort of categories, they kind of move in shape, changed by the kind of practices that, of the people who are participating in, these, in this form of consumption, sort of changes over time. So... More recently, things like GHB and ketamine would also be considered within a category of, of uh, party drugs. Mm. So it basically can be any drugs in that sense. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's you know, can, a category like this, yeah, it's it, it sort of socially constructed and kind of moves over time. Mm. And how has the youth drug consumption situation recently been in Australia? And like, because what we can see that drugs have been affecting the youth, particularly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always kind of a complex uh, sort of task to kind of get a kind of um, overall idea of what drug consumption is like in a country like Australia. So, I mean, in terms of like large trends, so the latest kind of population level data suggests that about 38% of young people aged 14 to 24 um, have tried an illicit drug at least once. 
Mm-hmm. And the most common within that would be cannabis, ecstasy or MDMA and cocaine. Um, but we also know that over time, the proportion of young people consuming drugs is actually decreasing. So um, in about 2001, about 50% of young people reported having used illicit drugs. So there's been this drop there. Mm-hmm. And alongside that, there's been a significant decrease in alcohol consumption among young people. Um, but... At the same time, other things are happening. So while overall sort of levels of use have decreased, some of the key party drugs have actually increased their popularity. So uh, 7.6% of young people have tried ecstasy, which is the highest uh, uh, since 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, again, over 7% for cocaine and almost 3% for ketamine, which are both the highest rates since 2001. So, you know, it's a kind of it's a tricky picture. So some, some, some substances are sort of increasingly less in vogue while others are coming, sort of coming back into fashion. Mm, I see. And coming into the topic of pill testing, it's, it basically helps to inform people about the drugs. But can you tell us how exactly it works? And can you give us an example? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, sort of depending on the kind of service, but the, sort of the pill testing that's sort of being debated, which are these kind of festival, festival services, mm. Um, you know, they, they would have like their tent or whatever set up in the festival itself and then young people can go in or the, you know, festival, the patrons can go and use it and they can provide a sample of, of, of the substances they've got and uh, hang around a bit while the people working in the service will, will test them, right? So the key thing that really provides young people with or the, the patrons with is um, knowledge about the chemical content of the drugs and most, and also very importantly, the purity or the strength of the drugs that they've got. So an example might be a, a person at a festival uh, has a few ecstasy pills and maybe they've heard that they're not so strong. So the person they got them from said, oh, they're not the strongest. Um, they're not going to, like, blow your head off. So they think, okay, well, maybe what I should do is have one straight away or maybe even more than that, you know, because they're not so strong. So they can go and have this pill tested beforehand and potentially they find out that these particular pills are actually very high strength which has actually been happening uh, recently in Victoria. So maybe they find out that there's not many adulterants, but they're actually very pure and therefore very strong uh, pills. And so with this knowledge, they can realise, you know, maybe having only having, maybe having a half, uh, a whole one is unwise. Maybe they should only have a half to begin with and that kind of thing. And, you know, so it's also an opportunity for the people working at the service to um, provide other kinds of information. So, you know, they can provide just, you know, sort of reminders of very classic standard harm reduction information, like other ways of keeping safe but aren't connected to drugs in particular. Maybe they have to remind them of the hot weather, of drinking water, all that kind of thing, as well as providing information about other kinds of support that might be available separate to the pill testing, so alcohol and other drug services that are available in Melbourne or in Victoria generally, generally, and, and that kind of thing, which might be relevant too. Mm, I see. And... Currently in ACT and Queensland, they have started trials on pill testing services. And is how how successful has it been so far here in Australia? Has it proven? Is it safe? Yeah. So I mean, my understanding is that they've been relatively successful. So I'm, I know more about the ACT one just because it was done a little while ago. So there's been time to have um, a few evaluations of it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was first conducted at a festival called Groove in the Moon. I think it was in 2019. And I know that, yeah, an independent evaluation of that found that it was um, the service was highly rated by young people. 
as well as the other stakeholders involved in setting it up. Um, it was used by over 200 people, and overall, when they were when when those patrons were told that the drugs included chemicals that they didn't expect, they did report that they were less likely to consume them. So that's kind of one of the key measures you'd want for a pill testing service to achieve. And importantly, while some participants or patrons said that they still planned on trying their drug, because, you know, importantly, these services actually, it remains the choice of the patron using them. They don't actually force them to do anything. It's just about providing information. Um, but when they said that they might still try their drug, they reported that they were going to use these other harm reduction strategies that, that they were told, you know, at the time, sort of reminded that at the time, like, you know, only using half or, or that kind of things are going slow. And that, the success of that actually led to the establishment of a fixed site service in Canberra called CanTest. And so that's a kind of uh, service available uh, outside of festivals. You can just go at any time. So, you know, in, in terms of have these things been proven safe, well, it's a complicated question because, you know, no drug consumption with an unregulated market can really be truly safe. Mm-hmm. It can certainly be safer. Um, and so pill testing, for me, has proven to be a pragmatic response to the potential dangers of some drugs that kind of come within an unregulated uh, drug market. So overall, I think it's a pragmatic and, and very reasonable thing to do within this kind of broader context. One of your focus that you were looking at was on youth drug education, which is one of your research focus. And you published a thesis about years ago looking at a perspective of politics and ethics of drug education's articulation of young people. So what is the issue here with Australian drug education and in, with its involvement with youth drug consumption? Yeah. yeah, so I mean, one of my kind of, well, my key concern with drug education is kind of analysing it um, as a kind of political or an, or an intervention into health with political and ethical kind of dimensions or ramifications. So, um, you know, one of the questions for me is, you know, you know, does drug education have the possibility of not only potentially being unhelpful, uh, but potentially harmful? So, you know, a lot of, uh, or, or, you know, the vast majority of research on drug education would analyse its effectiveness, right? And so it, its effectiveness is kind of considered, does drug education make young people less likely to consume drugs? Does it make them more knowledgeable about the harms of drugs? And all that kind of thing, and that's and, and if it does these things, it's considered effective, effective drug education. And I, you know, I've analysed a lot of drug education that's, that's positioned as effective in this way. But if you ask different questions, politically motivated or or ethically motivated, politically informed questions, you that sort of other questions about effectiveness come to mind or or start to emerge. So. I mean, one thing that I'm interested in, like, does drug education have the potential to increase the stigmatisation of people who consume drugs, for example, or how does drug education assess things like um, gender and kind of double standards around alcohol consumption and, you know, uh, you know if, someone can, if one person consumes a certain amount, they're, they're understood socially in one way and maybe negatively and another group might be understood positively. Well, how does it address things like um, the relationship between drug consumption and sex for different genders and that kind of and, and, and that kind of thing? So, those kinds of questions aren't really asked by a lot of research. Those politically informed questions, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of problems around these issues, um, are, you know, I've, I've come to uncover because I've been kind of asking these different questions and the effectiveness questions that are usually asked. 
Um, I mean, one of the key findings of the research that I've done is that when drug education struggles to acknowledge the variety or the complexity of drug experiences or young people's drug experiences, and so this includes what's fun about them, mm-hmm. it can actually make young, its audience, so young people, actually very sceptical of its, of its messages. Mm-hmm. So if they sort of, you know, they're quite savvy, if they perceive it to just be an anti-drug message or whatever, well, they can kind of switch off. And the kind of next effect of that is it can actually make them more, you know, they've reported becoming quite sceptical of other kinds of information that are then perceived to come from official or government resources. So in this way, drug education can kind of undermine its own claim to authority. I see. And a lot of concepts you were exploring was looking at peer pressure and decision-making, rational decision-makings and... And I guess, do you think it's the lack of understanding towards young people's complex social relations uh, when it, that's obviously quite involved in a lot of parties and everything? That, that, do you think that's missing in the Australian drug education's understanding towards avoiding harm? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the central issues, I think, is this kind of inability or unwillingness or just general struggle to kind of understand the complexity of youth, alcohol and other drug consumption practices. And so, you know, what I mean by that is that, you know, if approaching these things as something with kind of multiple, you know, multiple roles in someone's life, multiple effects and multiple motivations. So, and, you know, part of this is accepting that, you know, fun and pleasure are a key part of why young people use these things and why they're kind of meaningful for them. And, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't really, just can't only focus on harm. So, you know... The, the peer pressure example is a good one. Like, you know, drug education often uses that as a kind of classic way of understanding how someone comes to try drugs and that sort of tries to train young people in ways of resisting this or saying no to these offers of, drug, of drugs. But, you know, all you know, so many of the young people that I interview when I speak to them, they don't report this kind of narrative of, of how, they come to, how they came to try these things at all and, and they, it really doesn't sort of speak to their lived experience of these things. That is true. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of like, it, it, as, as a result of kind of, you get this kind of simplistic account of young people's social lives, which I think sort of is unhelpful. Mm, very interesting. I think as a fellow young person myself, I can say peer pressure is not something to easily just say that, oh, you don't have to uh, listen to your friends. But yeah, easier said than done. <laughs> totally understandable <laughs> there. So, and I guess now it just really comes to the question here we've all been wanting to answer. Do you think pill testing can help improve youth awareness towards drug consumption? And is it the answer? Yeah, well, look, pill testing is, is, is definitely one important strategy that can reduce harm. So it can certainly improve young people's awareness about the drugs they're interested in trying and relevant information, like other information such as harm reduction strategies or other kinds of drug services that are available and that kind of thing. Importantly, like I said, you know, it provides information about the purity and adulterants in the drugs that are sort of in their hand at that very that very time. And also it has this other effect, like it, it contributes to data uh, more general, so, you know, more generally. So, you know, where drug education, uh, sorry, not drug education, pill testing, where it provides, uh, finds information about chemicals that are kind of have entered the drug supply, this can then sort of become part of a public database which then can sort of inform the public about potentially bad patch, uh, bad batches of drugs that are going around. Mm-hmm. So in a way that that can actually help inform people that are separate to the festival itself, it can become part of a, more broad, a broader public service. And, well, is it the answer? Well, I mean, it's, 
certainly one answer that helps address some of the harms of an unregulated drug market. Mm. But, you know, given drugs are prohibited, they're produced within an illegal economy, as that is the case, it's always going to be hard to comprehensively address the kinds of harms that we've seen recently in Victoria. So it's not the only answer, it's just one important sort of pragmatic response to these issues. Mm. And unfortunately, pill testing isn't available in Victoria at the moment. So how can young Victorians help to reduce and avoid harms of drug use? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of um, very kind of, um, you know, considered classic advice around how to, how to reduce harms related to drugs. So, you know, the one is to, is to try never to consume alone, try and consume these things uh, with trusted people, people in your life. Uh, who can help, you know, you can look out for each other if anything goes wrong. Um, going slow, so potentially sampling a bit of what you've got and waiting to see what happens, what its strength is and that kind of thing before having more, because you can always have more, but you can't then just have less if you've had too much to begin with. Trying to purchase drugs from a trusted source, if possible. Mm. Uh, but this is a tricky one, because as we know, you know, people don't always know about the, you know, the ingredients of the drugs, even if they were, there might be one, uh, ingredient one week and then they've changed, but you know that's still good advice to try and buy from a, a trusted source and be aware of your environment. So you know, are you around people that you feel comfortable with, that you feel safe with, and that kind of thing, as well as um, non-drug related things. So like, what's the weather like? You know, heat exhaustion was a key thing in this event. These events that happened in Victoria recently. So you know, do I need to be making sure you know make sure I'm drinking water and all that all that kind of thing. And then another one is um, the available of home testing kits. So there are ways of testing drugs at home and these can be purchased online. Mm-hmm. And they give you a picture of um, the chemicals that are present in, in a drug. So they give you they can give you a, a picture of the presence of adulterants. Mm. But the key thing and the key drawback is they do not provide information on purity. So if someone sees that maybe the ecstasy pill they have doesn't have any adulterants, they think that they, that's great, they think that's good. Um, but, it, but it can still have a very highly potent dose of MDMA and therefore still be quite dangerous. And so other strategies like only sampling a bit and that kind of thing remain essential even if you have one of these um, home testing kits. I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Arijan. It's been lovely having you. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And that was Dr. Adrian Farugia, who is the Senior Research Fellow in the Drugs, Gender and Sexuality Program at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. And we were discussing whether is pill testing the answer to reducing harm of drug use.
you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. That was Flash and Electricity by Ken Koch. Now we're going to take a listen to one of the speeches at the Palestine rally that occurred yesterday. This is a speech by Uncle Robbie Thorpe, who is also a fellow 3CR presenter that usually comes on the Bonjils Fire at every Wednesday from 11 AM to 2 PM. So yeah, let's take a listen. and demand land back. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. So having said this, I'd like to introduce you to our first speaker, Uncle Robbie Thorpe. Uncle Robbie, that's right. Uncle Robbie is an Aboriginal man from the Kretunalong people of the Gunai Nation. For over 40 years, Uncle Robbie has shaken the status quo through political and cultural interventions that challenge ongoing genocide and colonization of Aboriginal lands and peoples in so-called Australia. Today, Uncle Robbie is here to talk to, about, to, talk to us about camp sovereignty with land back as a central demand. Please welcome Uncle Robbie. Thank you, everyone. Um, I've got a bit of a scratchy voice. Been camping down there, camp sorry for the last nine days. Um, it's been a bit of a battle, but uh, when the when the police first came up to us, they said you got 15 minutes to pack up your tents, put the fire out, and get out of here. But we've we've been there for nine days today. Back in 2006, we managed to stay there for 60 days. We hope, we hope to outdo that this time. In fact, we want to take it a little bit further and permanently control that little piece of land there. Taking a little bit of land back. I don't know if you notice, know, there's not a, a place there for Aboriginal people to really express themselves. We haven't really got a voice other than the corporation voice and uh, the one that's controlled by the state. So that's also a platform for us and also we want to share that with the people of Palestine and, and, and the people here today. So if you, if you get an opportunity, come down and see us. Um, it's cool drinks, got something, snacks down there. We have a ceremony every, every night at sundown we get together and we do a bit of a ceremony. So everyone's welcome. Come down. Um, yes, I've been involved with uh, the struggle for my people for probably nearly 50 years, actually. And the very first rally that I ever went to was actually a rally in support of Palestine. And it was here about 50-odd uh, years ago. So. I just want to let you know, our people stand in solidarity with the people of Palestine. We have very similar issues, invaded land, genocidal oppression, and, you know, so we, we stand in there, know that. And what we want to put out there, that um, these governments don't speak for our people. Uh, we know that they're supporting Israel and other fascists around the world. 
they're tearing this land up, stealing the resources out of it and supporting their like-minded friends around the world. Things like the coalition of the willing, AUKUS, you know, a lot of it comes from out of here, that power comes from out of here, America. So I just want to make it clear that our people don't support Israel. We support Palestine. Incredibly, we're now talking, because looks like we're going to take that little bit of land back, which is known as the King's Domain. Well, we call it Camp Sovereignty. And we're going to rename that either Camp Sovereignty or back, take it back to its original name, which is Yellowcat Willem. And um, once we see that happen, we'll know that things are starting to change in this place here. I don't think people realise the gravity of crime scene in Australia, in particular Victoria. And Victoria was the first colony to constitute 1851. It was based on the idea that this was an empty land. That's the original terra nullis pocket in this country. All the other colonies around the, the place followed suit from Victoria. You know, it's premised on the idea that we don't exist. Similar to the people of Palestine, you know, we were described as animals. It meant nothing to kill our people. And like, we've had 251 years of that so far. So we've managed to survive. You know, the people in Victoria in particular, our population was reduced to about, it was less than a thousand people. You know, pretty incredible. You know, we spent generations in the reserves, which is just uh, name, other names for concentration camps, mission stations, where we perished. They took our children, they starved us, and forcibly tried to assimilate us. And their Christianity and their, their backward wars. So we understand what's going on. That sort of brutal oppression did happen here machine guns and the machetes, the diseases. We went through that. Now it's a different form of oppression. It's a strike of a pen, stealing our children. It's a different form of genocide, but it's, it's the same result at the end of the day. So I'm really heartened by people turning up today in such tough conditions. And, and I think it's really important that we continue to maintain the momentum here. I think it's about 16 weeks now. Where every Sunday we've gathered here. It's quite incredible, folks. Now we have to take it further. Let's tip it over the edge. Now we're not we're not going back from here. I don't believe. We really haven't got nothing to go back to. Now we need to go forward here and remove these criminals and all these all these. This institution of crime. One of the things that else we're doing, I've got a, um, a QR code on the back of my phone there, which takes you to a, a website called um, crimescenaustralia.com, where you'll see um, in that, it's pretty serious, heavy duty legal talk in there, but one of the things we're trying to do is, um, a, a, we've got an arrest warrant out for uh, King Charles III. Yeah. <laughs>
and, and any other member of his crime, the Windsor crime family. We don't, we don't want them here. So uh, we're putting that out there. And uh, we, you know, we've got just cause here. You know, genocide's a crime, Australia, okay. I'm gonna make that clear. I don't know if people realise what happened in 1949 here in Australia, which is one year after they created the, the Genocide Convention and um, the United Nations. Australia was very much a part of those um, negotiations, but failed to actually legislate for the crime of genocide back then. You know, they, they, they ratified the act. It's called the CPPG, the Convention for the Prevention and the Punishment for the Crime of Genocide. Now they made that, they were going, oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course we'll do that, but they never actually legislated it. And the crimes against our people continue, particularly the, the deaths in custody, stolen children, creating the conditions of life for intent to destroy. So Australia's a, a, a genocide criminal too. And it's, it's in control of a lot of resources, a lot of power, which have stolen off our people. So, keep that in mind, folks, next time you vote, or don't even do that. Just just take it off them, in one, one way or another. Now, it, there's, there's many ways up this mountain. So, let's get up there together, and let's um, turn it all around for ourselves and everybody else. We're a peaceful people. We lived in harmony with the other 300 black nations on this continent. But not only with the people, we lived in harmony with the land and everything around us and everything in it. That's what we want to get back to, folks. You know, peace, healing, harmony, love and justice for all people. And that's what we're trying to say down here at Camp Sovereignty. Every night we have a, um, a ceremony uh, at sundown, so... And we're, we're hanging on to that place as we've been attacked on a, not attacked, but uh, they're trying to get us out of there. It's a constant battle against the parks you know, the, the local government and the police. So if you get a chance, come down and um, spend some time. You can actually bring a swag and camp out with us if you want. Thank you. And, you know, I, I want to see the freedom of Palestine in my in my life. I want to see the freedom of my people too, in my life. I've got nothing better to do. I've got children, I've got grandchildren, and I, I, I love this country. And it's, so, we've got something real to do, folks, fight for. And we've got just cause, the Aboriginal people. Australia's the only Commonwealth country without a treaty. Which, you know, what does that mean? We're still at war? Thank you very much. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer, Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
favourite Texas singing cowboy Charlie Crockett returns to Melbourne this February for a huge night at the Forum. Charlie and his band, the Blue Drifters, will deliver another scorching night of timeless country classics and Wild West tales on February the 12th with country soul queen Emma Donovan. Charlie Crockett and Emma Donovan at the Forum in February. Good times. Tickets on sale now. Love Police is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And that just now was a speech by Uncle Robbie Top, a fellow 3CR presenter at the Palestine rally that was occurring yesterday. The Palestine rally is still going on at the moment. It's still happening every Sunday from 12pm. So yeah, just head to State State Library of Victoria to catch everyone there. And you can catch Uncle Robbie at Bonjour's Fire every Wednesday from 11am to 2pm. You can tune in to 3CR855am or just head to 3cr.org.au to listen on the website. Now, we're going to go into... A segment by Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast. She spoke to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, who joined us to discuss Friends of Earth's plan for a climate-ready Victoria. So let's take a listen. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Cam Walker on the line from Friends of the Earth. G'day, Cam. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Annie. Yeah, um, and uh, I was fascinating to read... Uh, Friends of the Earth's plan for a uh, climate-ready Victoria leading up to the uh, Victorian budget, which is in May. I mean, you're, you're doing a running jump. It's important stuff. And uh, I noticed that uh, you quote that Jacinta Allen, the new Premier, who has said that she is aware that climate change has resulted in more frequent flooding and extreme weather, underscoring the need to transition to renewable energy. So uh, perhaps your plan is uh, on her desk right at the moment. Yes, we hope so. (laughs) All right, so there's uh, different uh, parts of your plan. Uh, One of them is the uh, uh, effective bus arrangements in the West. Why is that important? We know that many communities on the fringe of Melbourne that are growing quite rapidly and are driven basically by the developers are really terrible in terms of access to public amenities, open space, public transport, that sort of thing. And that's what happens when we let private developers set the nature of development in our cities. Um, And anyone that particularly lives in the west, the outer west or the outer north, knows that public transport can be terrible. Uh, It's not reliable and it's just not really practical for people in many aspects of their day-to-day lives. So, yeah, we're just saying buses are a really important thing to invest in. We're saying we need electric buses, so we need to transition rapidly off the old diesel buses and we need an accessible, what we call a turn-up-and-go bus network in the west. Uh, So... uh, that would include also a rerouting of the of the routes so they're much more direct and travel on the arterial roads because at present a lot of the bus networks, you know, weave around the suburbs and they're not practical for commuting. So we're saying, you know, a, a turn up and go system every 10 minutes, 6am to midnight, 
at least five days a week to seven days a week uh, to allow people to do their daily shopping, their, you know, taking the kids to school, going to work in a way that's going to be viable for them. Yeah, fast, frequent and connected buses. Now, this is part of your Sustainable Cities Collective and uh, it's uh, important, in a sense, for uh, effective... Uh, and sustainable living for people all over the city, not just part of the city. Exactly, yeah. We all need access to affordable, accessible and safe public transport. And it shouldn't just be if you're lucky enough to live on a train line or a tram line. You know, everyone deserves that sort of kind of access. Um, And buses are a relatively cheap way to do it. So it's hard after the fact to retrofit in a light rail network where there wasn't one before because you've got to, you know, access the land and do all that. Buses are a very cheap way to improve your public transport. And you can do it in a short period of time. might take you several years to put in a light rail or a heavy rail link. Uh, but buses you can pretty much do straight away. It's interesting because uh, you had forums in uh, 2022 and none of the Labor uh, people turned up to any of them. That's right, yes. We were very disappointed by the lack of buy-in from ALP uh, in the build-up to the election. And that actually came out in the wash, didn't it? Because there's been a downturn in support out in the West for the Labor Party. Yes, there has, and I think that you know, there's, there's multiple factors at play here. Of course, in the outer burbs, most people need to travel and have multiple cars within families to be able to get to work and, and, and do life and go to school and that sort of thing. So cost of labour, cost of living pressures are really huge. And... Um, this is a government that has done a lot of transformative work, you know, the Metro Tunnel and, you know, they're ending native forest logging in the east and they're phasing out coal. There's lots of great stuff that's happening, but they really run the risk of not looking after those emerging communities on the suburban fringes. And if they don't look after them, then, of course, people will look elsewhere in terms of where they're putting their vote. And before we leave that issue, there's a couple of other things. Um, there was a report which hasn't... Uh, uh, which actually supports a lot of the things you say, your group says, but uh, hasn't uh, uh, shown any government interest. Uh, And also a majority, they're saying, oh, nothing can be done, but the majority of those, uh, uh, the contracts go to one single international company, right? Yes, that's my understanding. Yeah, which is actually a very important key issue. Yes, it is. And it's interesting that with the current state government, they have re-established the State Electricity Commission, which is saying government and the public should be involved in energy production. And I think that is great. But what we have is a system that, you know, back to the days of Jeff Kennett, they privatised everything they could basically, you know, pick up Couldn't and sell nail off. down. Exactly. So, so much of our public transport system is run by for-profit companies and often companies from overseas. So there's a deeper conversation here about how, as all the licences to run different parts of our public transport system come up, how do we bring them back into the public running them again? We shouldn't accept that privatisation and outsourcing is a one-way street. I think the establishment of the SEC demonstrates what is possible with bitter government will, and we need to see more of those contracts as they, you know, come up for renewal. Let's look at uh, governments intervening and actually running our public transport systems again. And what you're saying is that that's a key issue for sustainability. Yes, we, we believe so, because if you're running 
essential infrastructure, be it water or electricity or public transport, and you're running it simply from a for-profit basis, which is what private companies do, it's never going to deliver fully for what the community needs or what the environment needs. So there is an environmental argument to bring services back into government and or public control. Now, because uh, you're targeting the um, allocations funding from the budget coming up in May, uh, you've got some really practical uh, issues regarding uh, native forests and uh, fire protection, haven't you? Yes, I think we do. And we're very mindful that there's not a lot of money in the state budget. And so, you know, there's no point asking for $100 million for something. So we've tried to suggest things that are, that are relatively cheap and deliver a good outcome. So hence the, the buses rather than saying build more train tracks. Uh, with fire, we think that um, it's clear that climate change is making our fire seasons longer and more intense. And um, it's very good that the government has invested heavily in career firefighters through the, the state firefighting agency, which is called Forest Fire Management Victoria. But we rely very heavily on volunteers. And if you live in Melbourne, you can't actually sign up as a volunteer firefighter because you need to live very close to a station. So the absolute majority of people in Victoria and the absolute majority in Melbourne cannot become volunteer firefighters. But we reckon that lots of people would chip in if they could. So we're proposing a new system where there would be a volunteer remote area firefighting team that would set up uh, within the CFA at a very low cost and we're estimating you could actually set it up and get it running, a pilot program, for about $200,000, which is absolutely nothing when you think of a state budget, but make it accessible to people who live you know, in Fitzroy or Elwood or Box Hill so they can sign on and they can assist firefighting efforts because we know we are losing volunteers volunteer firefighters and we do know that many brigades in the country are getting older and struggling to find new members and we also know that fire seasons are getting worse and longer and that puts continued strain on the existing volunteers we have. So we're saying set up this team, put it in the CFA, make it accessible to city-based people and it means that people in the city get to share some of that burden if they want to uh, but it benefits all of Victoria if we did it that way. Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, your figures are pretty frightening, actually. The CFA has lost around 2,000 volunteers over two years, and it appears that around uh, 10,000 volunteer firefighters quit the uh, rural file service in Queensland. So, I mean, you know, that's the Queensland experience, but we're talking about Australia-wide, oh, I mean, Victoria in p- particularly, but this is an Australia-wide issue. Yes, it is. And the other thing I'd just note is that this proposal for a volunteer remote area firefighting team, New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT already have these crews. Victoria doesn't. And it's kind of strange that we don't because it's a very cheap way to bring extra people into fighting fires. But what we're proposing is different to what anyone else has done before, where we're saying focus specifically on people in urban areas. So we reckon it would just open up a whole bunch of volunteers who are going to be often young and fit and diverse, you know, and we need those people 
frankly, in the in the CFA, uh, bring them in and allow them to be involved. And you could train them and deploy them in a way that would make a lot of sense. So if you have summer holidays, you say, I'm available for three weeks in January, and then you could just be deployed in if there was a need in terms of what they call the big fires, the campaign fires. And if we stay in the forests, uh, you've got a plan for uh, what should happen now that uh, logging native forests has been um, stopped in Victoria? Well, at this point, we don't exactly have a plan because we're saying now is the moment for the conservation movement to listen deeply to First Nations people. Uh, We have 1.8 million hectares of forestry land in the east of the state that has been subject to logging for many years. That has now stopped, which is absolutely amazing. The government needs to suggest a process for how we decide what next with those forests. They haven't announced that process as yet. But what Fung Earth is saying is let's just take a deep breath. Let's engage with First Nations people who have an interest in that forest country, you know, where it's their traditional uh, country, and listen to what they're saying. And this is a moment where, you know, the conservation movement opens its meetings and has done for years by acknowledging country. This is the moment where we get to demonstrate that 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 solidarity is real. We need to listen we need to reflect and we need to take direction from First Nation groups with an interest in the forest country. And, uh, of course, that means employment for Indigenous people too. Yes, indeed. And there's going to be such a lot of work to do because we know native forest logging has been disastrous for biodiversity. We know we have well over 100,000 hectares of alpine ash forests which is on the the cusp of collapse. If they get one more fire through those forests, we will lose more than 100,000 hectares of forest. That is completely collapsed and become just a a grassy wasteland, possibly with some wattle trees in it. There's so much restoration work we need to do, and it's really essential that First Nations people, traditional owner groups, are adequately resourced to be involved in healing the country in the way that we need to do. We need to bring the best ecological science into that mix, but we also need to trust and work with First Nations people and ensure that they are decision makers in that process, not just considered another stakeholder. Uh, Just uh, remind your listeners, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're having a chat with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, and we're talking about uh, Friends of the Earth's uh, suggestions (laughs) for a climate uh, safe Victoria and uh, these are suggestions for the Victorian budget coming up in May. Um, We're now talking about uh, a Victorian Community Climate Adaption Fund and I I was particularly interested in this because it's about community-led solutions but it's also about how uh, Victoria is not just the cities, uh, they're in rural areas as well. Yes, exactly. And we are getting what they call compound disasters now. So we had those big floods in Northern Vic in 2022, and now we've just had another bunch of flooding. Earlier in the summer, they had those big fires in Gippsland that was followed pretty much straight away by flooding. So we're seeing under climate change, under global warming, the gap between natural disasters shrinking. And so you get these compound effects. And, you know, you can have one flood and your house gets flooded and you recover and you get on with your life. But what happens when 10 months later you get the same flood again or, you know, you get another fire? So we need to accept we are in a different point in history. Climate change is no longer something that might happen in the future somewhere else. It's happening to us now. 
that drives the need for us to take action to mitigate, that is, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and Victoria needs to continue to do that. But we need to directly grapple with the fact that many of our communities are being impacted by climate change right now, and we need to understand that people in communities often know best, and there's often great knowledge and great skills and great networking capacity in communities, so we need to empower them to be able to be in charge of how they prepare for their disasters, how they respond to disasters, and how they recover afterwards. And uh, then you go to a really practical thing, which is the gas substitution and home electrification system. You say it's been lagging a bit. It it has. I mean, they are moving forward, and it's interesting that the Liberals have come out and are arguing, you know, oh, no, we need more gas, and that's an argument from the 1990s. We don't need gas. Maybe they've got shares. Maybe they've got shares in some company. I don't know what's going on, but they're backing the wrong horse. Um, they're attaching it to a bit of a culture war kind of frame. Uh-huh. But the fact is, we get our, most of our gas from Bass Strait. Bass Strait gas reserves are declining very rapidly. And we all know that when something becomes rarer, the cost can only go in one direction, which is up. So if we're going to hang on to gas, we're just locking ourselves into steeper costs. And so the cost of living will continue to go up. We know, however, you can run homes very easily on 100% electrics. Uh, that's heating and cooling and hot water systems and cooking. Um, and the government is moving in that direction and they do have this gas substitution roadmap. And we're just saying, keep going, you know, keep going faster, keep helping people uh, to switch what they call fuel switching away from gas uh, and into home electrification. Um, Give funds to allow people to do that, have an energy upgrade program, and really important that no one is left behind. So invest in retrofitting public housing to replace gas appliances, you know, gas-heated hot water systems and gas stovetops uh, to reduce costs for people who are living on very limited income. Now, Cam, you want people, listeners, to go and have a look and if they actually agree to send a letter of support. Yes, that would be great. If you just do a web search, Friends of the Earth um, proposal for Climate Ready Victoria, you'll find um, our main page very easily. You'll find the full budget submission if you're interested in the details and you'll find a letter which will go to the Premier saying, hey, here are some ideas. I would love it if you would fund this. And, of course, it's set up as a letter that you can edit. So if there's things that you're interested in, add them as well and uh, send it to the Premier. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, Cam. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, and good to have a chat. And that was Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. And as he said, it's all about Victoria being climate ready. And that was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity, Solidarity Breakfast speaking to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about Friends of the Earth's plan for a climate ready Victoria. And yeah, that's all we have for today's show. Rob, were you looking forward towards the weekend? Uh, the week ahead? Uh, not a whole lot, really. I was just honestly so focused getting through the last two days of like heat that mm. I didn't really, like as I, as we were saying yesterday in the rally, like didn't couldn't really think about anything <laughs> <laughs> other than what I was doing right then. Yeah, it's just the heat makes us not focus and yeah it's just really bad um hopefully it's not too warm yeah this week ahead it seems like it's touching around 20 23 24 degrees so hopefully it stays that way mm. so yeah 
um, I'm I'm gonna be quite busy dealing with stuff because uh, moving and yeah, um, I have just a lot of visa, visa personal yeah runs I have to run so really a red type. Yep. Anyways, listeners, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.